What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Jolted, stunned, investors getting an early morning shocker from Japan, why it has rates jumping globally, and does it mean central banks are losing their grip on markets? Plus, yesterday, Carter Worth warned us away from high-flying consumer stocks. Well, they were high-flying. But today, we'll hear from one investor who says bet on the consumer in 2023. And three months ago, FedEx kicked off a market scare by warning of global recession. Today, they report again. So what should we be braced for? That plus Nike coming up in earnings exchange. But we begin with some green arrows for once. Dominic Chu has that for us. Green arrows right now that were red at one point today. Fairly symmetrical, Kelly, because at the lows of the session, we were down about 22 points or handles on the S&P up about 20 at the highs of the session. We're tilting towards that higher end of the range right now. 38.29 the last trade for that broader S&P 500. The Nasdaq composite 10,571 up 25 points, one quarter of 1% advance. So a little bit of an underperformer today. And the Dow Industrial is up about 150 points, one half of 1%, 32,906. So fractional gains. And at this point, the bulls will take it. We've seen a nice downdraft since the Fed announcement this past week. Now, one place to keep an eye on the marketplace, it's being talked about a lot. Kelly mentioned what happened with the Bank of Japan and that surprise move in interest rates. What that has done is at least put some volatility in the currency markets that has now taken the dollar to the downside relative to many developed market currencies. This ETF, the Invesco DB US dollar index bullish ETF, ticker UUP, tracks that dollar index. Now, over the course of the past year, going from the beginning of the year to the highs, you're talking about a 19% gain roughly. That's huge when it comes to currencies overall. Now, since those highs, we've come down roughly 9% from those levels. So as much as we want to talk about the strong U.S. dollar story, yes, very much still in play right now, but it's, again, well off the highs that we've seen over the course of the last few months in terms of the strength of the U.S. dollar versus all those other big currencies out there. This ETF tracks them pretty closely. And if you're looking for a stock of the day, the worst performer in the S&P 500 is Tesla. Now, this has been a momentum downside mover for quite some time. There are some idiosyncratic issues with regard to valuation on the rate side. Also, maybe whether or not Elon Musk is going to continue his involvement to a substantial degree with Twitter, the other company he now owns and is the CEO of, versus the company Tesla that he is the main driver of there as well. So Tesla shares down 5.5% right now. The worst performing the S&P, again, by the way, if you look at these levels, Kelly, the reason why I put a three-year chart up here, it it's still a 425% in that three-year span, but you got to go all the way back to November of 2020 to find a level this low in Tesla. So whether or not 2023 becomes that year where we find some stability, maybe a bounce, 
That remains to be seen, but Tesla shares certainly still in that downward drifting mode. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks. As tempting as it is to talk about Tesla right now, we should get to the big market story of the day coming from overseas. The Bank of Japan jolting global markets overnight after stepping back from yield control. It will now let the yield on its 10-year bonds trade at a whopping half percent instead of just a quarter percent. may sound like small potatoes, but it sent markets reeling. Bond yields jumped globally after the move. You can see Japan's stock market lower. Our dollar tumbling lower. That's what that's showing there. And look at our 10-year note up to almost 3.7%. So why did they surprise markets like this? And why the strong reaction? We have a delight today. CNBC contributor Michelle Cruz Cabrera here on set with me, along with Peter Bookvar, who's also a CNBC contributor and CIO of Bleakley Financial Group. Welcome to both of you. Perfect duo to help break this down. Michelle, let's start with what is, why did they do this? So if you think about what's happened with interest rates for the last 10 years, Think about it like a mattress. Every single central bank in the world was pressing on their respective uh, spring, right? And then suddenly we started to see all these central banks around the world lifting up on their springs, except for the Bank of Japan. They Mm. kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And what they revealed today is that their arms are getting tired. They just can't do it anymore. They're going to start to let their interest rates rise because they have to, uh, because it was going to get out of control if they didn't do something. Why was the reason that they tried to keep rates down? Just it would be too expensive? or they were? What, what was the purpose of this policy? Remember, they've always been way more aggressive than everybody else because they were fighting deflation. They were trying to get prices to rise for years and years and years. So they did something way more radical than even the United States did. You know, the U.S. says... We want interest rates to be lower. We're going to go out and buy $90 billion worth of treasuries. Bank of Japan said, no, no, no. We want our interest rates to be at a certain amount. Mm. So we are going to buy as many treasuries as we have to buy. Wow. There are days when there are no trades in the Japanese treasury market because they are the entire market. They own 50% of the Japanese government bond market. That's how radically interventionist and they are. Peter, we know it's a huge market, so itself, whatever they do, has implications. But also, when you hear what Michelle's describing, you go, well, you can see why people might think this is a preview of what's to come elsewhere. Why did they stick with this policy, even when it seemed like everyone else was starting to back off? Well, it, 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 they almost became uh, an arm of the government in terms of fiscal and monetary sort of meshing together, that the fiscal side still had to spend a lot of money. They have extraordinary levels of debt. And the BOJ was sort of meant to keep their financing costs so low. But the position became untenable. On Thursday, they're about to print headline inflation near 4%. Wow, in Japan. And ex-food and energy, 2.8%. And to continue with the straight face, keeping policy as is, just became, I, I think, as I said, untenable. Ahead of, and maybe Kuroda just wanted to do something before he leaves at sure. the end of March. The, the governor. But here's what I don't understand. If their goal was to get inflation higher and then they achieved that. So is this a, are, are they did they achieve what they wanted or was this not working? It seems like the very goal is now the problem with this policy. Well, the problem with keeping the yield curve so suppressed is that it destroyed the Japanese banking system. Hmm. The Japanese Topics Bank Stock Index is down 88% in nominal terms from where it was in 1989. Mm. How can you have a healthy economy if you destroy your banking system, since so much monetary policy and lending is supposed to flow through the banks? So rather than generating faster economic growth, it actually depressed economic growth in Japan. Yeah, and why they stuck with it, you know, mystery, right? They finally achieved what they wanted to achieve, and yet they're so enmeshed in this policy. One of the implications of what they did for decades is that Japanese investors, because they could get no yield in their home market, 
tended to be big overseas buyers of other stuff. The average Japanese investor was far more likely to buy, say, a Brazilian high-yield bond huh. than your average American investor would be. And that's why you saw yields all over the world go up. Because if the Japanese at home can now start to, and they're not getting there yet, but right. they're starting to get more yield at home, then they will buy fewer things overseas. Oh so you goodness. have a big buyer that is potentially leaving the market. And what's the implication, Peter, beyond, as Michelle said, that immediate uh, impact in some of the places the Japanese might invest? Like over the next six to 12 months, what's the broader message you think for global monetary policy or for U.S. investors? I mean, what, what are some of the takeaways? Well, when you look at the last 10 years, where's a lot of the excess? And it really was in European bonds with negative interest rates and also in Japan. So you have this sort of bubble in deflating in these bond markets that, as Michelle said, is going to have global implications. So the BOJ is going from 25 to 50. What happens if next year they go from 50 to 75? It's going to keep interest rates around the world elevated for longer. And also, to your point, the, bank, uh, the, the, Chinese, I'm sorry, the Japanese used to own $1.3 trillion of U.S. Treasuries going into this year. That pile has now been reduced by about $250 billion. Wow. And it would like, it's likely going to shrink. And foreign central banks have been a next seller of U.S. Treasuries this year, which, which will go as part of the story with the BOJ, likely continued sellers as we go into 2023. So you have them selling, you have the Fed, you know, not buying more, maybe selling. In other words, like a lot banks of banks selling less too. Banks, so, so so all of a sudden, and a lot of supply coming. Exactly, the size of the treasury auctions has increased. Rick has talked about how some of the results have been worse lately. So you think that's what gets us a ten-year at three point seven percent? Is that too high, or is it normalizing? You know that that is the key rate for so for our entire financial system. I think you can make the argument if you were just analyzing U.S. growth and inflation stats. You can make the argument: Oh, growth is slowing, inflation's moderating. The ten-year should go to three. But for the reasons we just said, I can make the argument that, it's, that the tenure goes to four and a half to five. And if it did that, it wouldn't be for good reason. It would be because these, uh, these governments and these central banks further lose control of their bond markets like the Bank of England did. Yeah. There's one other thing to watch for here. It's something called structured products. Mm. This is something that was sold heavily in Japan to people who wanted more yield. Um, a lot of those are going to lose a lot of money if we start to see interest rates rise. Structured products were sold heavily in Japan. We've also seen them to some degree here in the United States. Of so there course. could be a lot of individual investors out there holding things that they didn't understand that they thought were protecting them, but instead are going to hold them. And people are wondering, is that another tip of the iceberg? Is sure. this some dark corner of the financial market that was set up to achieve A and instead is going to have terrible re repercussions? And it's kind of like what people say, which is we're still at the very early innings of this experiment where we said the entire global financial system was operating on zero rates, ZERP, whatever you want to call it, for the last decade. And what's it going to look like now under you know, these, these higher rates. Also, what does this mean for the Bank of Japan? Do we view this, especially with the governor about to leave, as does, is this a sign of, hey, we did it, we were able to hit some of these inflation targets, so now we can back off a little bit? Or is this more of a moment where they say, we're just trying to disentangle ourselves and, and kind of let markets return to something more, more normal and more healthy? Probably a little both. Yeah, and, and I do think the latter. I think they, they want to, well, the Bank of Japan also feeling all this peer pressure that everyone else is doing it except them in terms of tightening. And it is good to see some normalization. But a lot of things break during that process. And also these interest rate increases are happening with debt levels that are extraordinarily high. So the interest expense that all these governments are going to be paying on all the debt that they've accumulated over the last couple of years goes up a lot. Japan has the highest debt to GDP ratio 
in the entire world. We spend a lot of the last crisis worrying about Italy. Right. Now, this time, we may be thinking a lot more about Japan. Interesting. And, of course, we have our own debt levels to consider as well as rates rise. Guys, thank you. Really appreciate it. Michelle Cruz, Cabrera, and Peter Bookvar today. Speaking of rates, since the end of October, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate has dropped a full percentage point. But today's fresh housing data shows it hasn't translated into better numbers on the construction front. And, in fact, the sector may be nearing layoffs, a warning sign for the broader economy. Diana Olick has the latest. Diana? Yeah, and Kelly, mortgage rates are actually now inching up again, but I'll get to that in a second. I want to focus on building permits, the report we got this morning for both single and multifamily homes, because they're an indicator of what builders see in the future, and those are the real headlines of this report. Now, single family permits dropped 7% in November compared with October, and were down nearly 30% year over year. This despite the fact that rates actually came down a bit in November, as you said. Now, when builders were filing these permits, Builders still see affordability as a major hurdle, despite the fact that about a third of them are offering their customers mortgage rate buy downs. So that's a red flag. Then multifamily permits dropped a much harder 18 percent for the month, down nearly 11 percent from a year ago. This slowdown is a combination of several things. Higher costs for construction higher interest rates, increasing the cost of capital, and believe it or not, potential oversupply. There were roughly 932,000 multifamily units under construction in November. That's the highest number since December of 1973. And on top of that, we're seeing rents grow at the slowest pace in nearly two years. That's according to a new report from Realtor.com today. And did I mention those mortgage rates? All right, so the 30-year fix popped up 11 basis points this morning to 6.38%. That after hitting a recent low of 6.13% just last week. What should I say, Kelly? Merry Christmas? I don't know. I know. Well, (laughs) I mentioned the layoff uh, issue, but Annetta Markowska, of course, who uh, has been quite hawkish on the labor markets over at Jeffries and and has been right about the strength of them, you know, put out a note today saying, hey, listen, these, these really could flag broader layoffs in the construction sector. And unfortunately, as we know, it's a leading sign for the rest of the economy. Yeah, and it's so interesting because barely a year ago, I know you and I were sitting here saying we need more labor in the construction market. That's the problem. We can't get labor. There's not enough. And now suddenly things are just 180. So it's amazing how quickly this market cooled off just because of those higher interest rates. Absolutely. Diana, for now, thank you. Diana Olek. Coming up, Nike and FedEx reporting tonight. Both have seen a dramatic reduction in earnings estimates in the second half of this year. Both are off more than 35% from their highs. We've got a preview of the results and how to position next. Plus a look at the sectors currently trading at the biggest discounts in the market. This is one of them down 37% this year. The domino breaks it down for us coming up. As we head to break, here's a final look at markets where the Dow's up 117 points, about a third of a percent, but the Nasdaq in danger of turning negative up just a point right now as it uh, contends with a 10-year yield up at almost 3.7 percent. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange. And when you've got FedEx and Nike reporting, you don't need a third name today. So let's get right to it, and we'll start with FedEx. Those shares are up 12% this quarter as they look to bounce back from a round of seriously steep cost cuts. Remember, in September, the company said they'd have to cut costs by nearly $2.7 billion as e-commerce slowed. This resulted in furloughs, warehouse closures, and the suspension of Sunday deliveries right ahead of the holiday rush. CNBC's Frank Holland has the story as we brace for their earnings tonight. And Boris Schlossberg, joins us with our trades today. He's Managing Director of FX Strategy at BK Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, guys. Frank, what are you watching? Well, hey there, Kelly. You just hit on one of the points right now. FedEx shares up about 12% this quarter, basically doubling the S&P. A lot of consensus here is that all the bad news has already been priced into this stock. Today in this report, we're looking for more details on that $2.2 to $2.7 billion cost-cutting plan. $700 million of those savings are supposed to happen in this quarter. Exactly how does FedEx do it? Another question is, with all that cutting, are they, man- are they able to keep this holiday season as profitable as possible? And then Looking forward into 2023, Lunar New Year, coming up on January 22nd, a time of high volume. Do they have enough capacity in place to handle that? Big questions for CEO Raj Subramanian in his second report after that very dire earnings warning where he forecasted a potential global recession that he said was weighing on their volume, something to watch. A couple other factors. Uh, according to analysts, the estimates for FedEx's operating margin, this stock can trade on margin, is the lowest since 2001. If you take out COVID, not a great sign for wow. this company. And then also, are they still on track for their $1.5 billion share repurchase plan? A big question. If they're still on track, that means that the management believes the FedEx shares are still undervalued. You have to remember, even with all these earnings warnings and the slowdown that we're seeing in e-commerce, there still are volumes not only for e-commerce, but also for freight. FedEx is the biggest trucker when it comes to the less than truckload segment in the U.S. Wow. And I don't know if we can show, Boris, a chart of FedEx versus UPS year to date. But when we spoke with Stephanie Link about the stock yesterday and what she was expecting with FedEx, she said, look, I basically take this as an opportunity if it pulls back, if, the, if that and UPS pull back, to buy UPS on that weakness. So this is also becoming not so much a tale of the economy, but of which of these is the better performer. Yeah, I mean, on the street, the consensus view is that, you know, FedEx really dropped the ball in execution. And I think at this point, a lot of the analysts are very wary of them, despite all the promises they're making. Um, And they do like UPS a lot more because UPS actually has a sort of a smaller footprint strategy, which has really helped them to maintain their margins and not really run into trouble as FedEx has just done. But there are a couple of uh, tailwinds for FedEx that could rescue them. Obviously, one is the reopening of China, which could create a lot more volume, as you referred to, the Lunar New Year. Then the fact that the oil prices have dropped so sharply since even they warned a couple of months ago, that could provide a little bit of margin relief for them as well. Stock is very cheap at you know 12 times earnings, 2.5% dividend effectively. Um, and they've always um, essentially raised their dividend. They have you know 30% payout ratio. So they're in relatively decent shape financially, but the big, big open question is execution. And of course, the secondary question is, are we going to get 
a massive global slowdown um, in 23, which it will destroy any kind of forward guidance that they have at this point. Oh, sure. So, so Boris, it's, 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 yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's not definitely not a stock that you're going to be uh, looking to do for growth, but it may be obviously a long-term value play at this point. Do you have a preference? Would you, would you look to own UPS here, or do you think both of them you just have to wait and see? Um, I think, you know, you, the good thing about FedEx is, 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 as everybody said, is a lot of the bad news is priced in. And if they can um, actually show in, on this conference call that they have some improvement in execution, they'll probably get tremendous amount of uh, investor reinterest uh, in the play. One of the ways you might want to play this is just to simply sell, you know, 160 puts, which will put you into the 155 cost basis at this point. They're about five dollars. And um, if they expire worthless, it's like a 30 percent annualized return. Um, if you do, do get puts stock to you, at least you, you, you're having to put it at a very decent price. Right. Um, and, you know, FedEx is certainly going to be here to stay. And, Frank, we should put that two-year chart back up, but it shows that UPS is basically flat while FedEx is down like 40% in that period of time. I don't know if that coincides with Carol Tomei taking over, but that is a, a remarkable gap there. Hey, Kelly, one other factor here. Uh, FedEx has the bigger business over in China, as we mentioned before, and Boris referenced uh, Ross Romanian's forecast that we're going to enter a global recession. If China actually has the ability to reopen, FedEx would be a bellwether there. They would have sure. a lot of insight to that business because they have so many facilities and workers there. And the, what they say on the call would not only likely move UPS, but also the trucking market here in the U.S. As I mentioned, they're one of the biggest truckers here in the U.S. and other companies that are levered to the reopening of China. Absolutely. No, it's a great point. We're about to talk more about that with Nike. In fact, guys, thank you. Frank Holland, actually, Boris, stay with us. Uh, we really appreciate sure. it. As we turn to shares of Nike, down 40% themselves this year as they battle inventory backlogs and inflation woes. But it is slowing demand in China that is hit them the hardest. After all, China is about 17% of their annual revenue, probably more of their earnings. CNBC senior markets commentator Michael Santoli has the story here. Hi, Mike. Hey, Kelly. Well, you know, expectations for the current quarter for Nike and also for the current fiscal year have been knocked down since September by about 20 percent. So clearly the bar is lower. That's after Nike did give that reduced guidance. Mostly it was about inventories much heavier than expected and the margin implications of trying to clear that inventory. One of the big questions in the report today and in the guidance is did Nike kind of take the pain already with that guidance and maybe they've done better on realized selling prices than uh, a lot of analysts anticipated. Obviously, China, you mentioned a big element looking for stabilization there. I don't think anyone's talking about a big pickup in activity, but that's going to be uh, all about how they're thinking about fiscal 2024, frankly, because the current fiscal year 2023 is already underway when it comes to a comeback in China. Uh, and then currency, uh, you know, obviously the stock doesn't principally trade on that, but it's become more of a tailwind since the last guidance was given. That was in September. The most relevant currency pairs, uh, dollars weaker against those things. That should be at least a little bit of an offset or help. One other issue, some of the analysts are talking about, Kelly, that maybe there's some market share advantages from Nike out of the uh, dissolution of the Adidas Kanye West yep. partnership, Yeezy sales, some of the full price new releases from Nike uh, maybe sold better than expected because of that. Yeah, I, I know parents in town whose kids wanted Yeezys and then it was like, no, 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 you can't, you know, you're not buying <laughs> those anymore. Uh, they got to wear something. Boris, I'm surprised. Is it true this company still trades at a 34 to, uh, forward multiple? Yeah, you know, it's it's a global premium brand, and you pay a premium price for that. But they really kind of, I think, in, in some ways, deserve it. I mean, they, they, they have just been a tremendous performer. And Mike is absolutely right. 
they could get um, a little bit of, um, uh, of benefit out of the Adidas woes as we go forward. Certainly China reopening is going to be a tremendous um, boon for them because that will burn down through a lot of the inventory build. Um, and the most recent um, responses, according to a lot of the analysts on the street, is that consumers have actually really responded to a lot of their promotions well. So um, it should be doing well. Finally, one last thing I think is kind of interesting is the whole World Cup story. So. You know, Messi has been the ambassador for Adidas, but Messi's kind of like the face of a soccer past. What's really interesting is that Mbappe is an ambassador for Nike, and I think that kind of tremendous amount of fuel going forward is underappreciated at this point, especially, you know, with the incredible World Cup that we had and tremendous amount of interest uh, that we've had globally. I think they may get tremendous, uh, tremendous, you know, benefit out of that. So there's a lot of things uh, positive going for them over the next month or two. And I think, like you said, they kind of really undersold their problems so that uh, they can surprise hopefully to the upside as we go forward. Mike, could you get a comment, give a comment as well about the multiple, because especially in a year when the yeah. stock's down 40%, still trade 34 times in a market like this. It's quite striking. It is, and I do think it's, it's a challenge because this basically represented the ceiling for Nike's valuation pre-pandemic. So Nike was one of those companies, you could put Disney in that category, that got completely revalued higher based on that kind of global, you know, defensible brand franchise thesis. So I don't necessarily think that it can't sustain a multiple like this, but you really start to have to see the growth drivers kicking in to, to, to hold up this way. And I don't think it's a, really an interest rate story. It's all about, you know, was there a bit of a pull forward through the pandemic? And have you given Nike too much credit for being able to sustain the margin? So I, I do think it remains a little bit of, a, of more of a challenge to keep this multiple than it is just a no-brainer to pay it. All right, Boris, final comment, if you would. China ties together many different trades in the market right now from oil, uh, you know, Things like the K-Web a little bit more obviously, stories like Nike. Right. We've heard some analysts saying their kind of contrarian take for next year is that China could be a really good market story. Do you share that view? Well, it's certainly going to be, I think, a better market story than it was last year. If you look at something like Starbucks, which is really investing a lot into China, and I think they have their ear to the ground probably better than almost anybody else on the American brands, you kind of have to believe that, yes, the, you know, the, China even growing at Four, three, four percent is just so huge relative to the rest of the world simply because it's such a massive market that you have to believe that those brands that have very, very strong footprints in China, um, any kind of upside uh, momentum is going to be very positive for them going forward. So, yeah, I do think that and that's one of the reasons, obviously, the big bet on Nike is that when China comes back, just any incremental dollar is going to really help them. All right. Believe it there. Boris Schlossberg, thank you, sir. Mike, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, our Mike Santoli. Coming up, zombie office buildings. Office rates have been getting hammered this year, and you can see the vacancies in places like Manhattan. We've got the latest numbers, what it means for the Big Apple and for these trades. That's coming up. Plus, a closer look at some of the names on the move this hour. This one having another bad day. Maybe you can guess it. We'll have that name next. Here's a quick look at the Dow as well as we head to break. We've got about two to one advancers outpacing decliners, a little better than that even. Look, I can walk in front of this today. Vanna White style. Up here we have Boeing outperforming with a gain of nearly 2%. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
Welcome back. We're still in the green. Even the Nasdaq now up 21 points. Small gains. The Dow's up about half a percent near session highs right now. Here are some of the movers this hour. We're watching Moderna, the top performer in healthcare today, after Piper Sandler said they see COVID vaccine revenues at the high end of guidance next year and reiterated their overweight rating. It also comes on the heels of an upgrade at Jeffries yesterday. Moderna tacking on another 7%. Lucid Motors moving higher after the EV maker raised more than $1.5 billion in a series of stock sales, but the shares are down 80% this year, even with today's 2% pop. And Warner Brothers Discovery getting hit yet again today, falling to an all-time low. Shares of WBD are down more than 62% since their trading debut in April, falling 17% over the past week alone as they tackle larger-than-expected write-downs. Ongoing restructuring, you heard from Alex Sherman yesterday. One preview from the media executives he spoke with for 2023 is we could see a proxy fight here, maybe even going after David Zaslav, down 16% this week after Netflix ad-supported tiers are also reportedly off to a slow start. Tough space for streaming right now. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Ty? Wow, what a story there, Kelly. Thank you. Here's what's happening at this hour, folks. Ukrainian President Zelensky making a surprise trip to the combat zone and thanking troops for their sacrifices. He went to the eastern city of Bakhmut, which has seen some of the most intense fighting of the Russian invasion. A bold move to raise the morale of Ukrainians and dishearten Russians seeking to encircle the city. And Delta Airlines reportedly working on offering free Wi-Fi on its flights. The Wall Street Journal says the rollout could start early next year with passengers needing a membership in Delta's loyalty program to access the free service. Sounds like a small sacrifice for that. And Argentina celebrating its World Cup win with a massive parade through the nation's capital. Hundreds of thousands of people crowding the streets of Buenos Aires, hoping to catch a view of their national team and maybe Lionel Messi. The celebrations took over some roads and highway overpasses after rumors that the parade route had been changed. What an, That was the best soccer ma- match I think I ever saw, Kelly. <laughs> I wish I could. I saw a couple minutes of it. <laughs> well, you're busy with other things, but it, let me just trust. You can go get it on YouTube. Yeah, I'm congratulations sure. uh, to Argentina, and it really was something um, amazing. Tyler, yep. thanks, and I'll see you soon. See you in a half Tyler hours. Matheson. Still ahead, this payment stock is a standout, down only 5% this year. And despite worries about a spending slowdown, our strategist sees 20% upside. The name and two other recession-proof stocks to buy next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The debate on whether next week will bring a recession or or next year, I should say, will bring a recession or soft landing. I mean, the debate's still up in the air, but my next guest says no matter what happens, the consumer will still do well. And he's got three names he thinks will come out on top. Let's bring in Alan Boomer, managing partner and chief investment officer at Momentum Advisors. Alan, you always like Visa. I can't remember a time you've been on that you haven't been a fan of that stock. You still are? I'm a fan. And good to see you, Kelly. Welcome back. Thank you. I love Visa. Visa is like the toll road that all spending, almost all spending goes through. They've got a huge market share in terms of payment processing through their network, almost 50% of the global payments that are processed. I I like this stock. And, you know, the one thing that I would change if I were the CEO, pay some more dividends. They're paying out less than a quarter of their free cash flow. But I think it's a great company. But does that caution tell you something? I mean, is there a reason? Are they, do they need to invest that cash for a better return? Or do you think that they are more cautious about the outlook than maybe you are? 
No, of course. I think anytime a company is paying out such a small percentage in terms of dividends, the view is that they've got internal things they can invest in for a better rate of return. And so I, I just think if you're already the biggest, there's probably more of a likelihood that you kind of stay where you are, maybe not a tremendous amount of growth opportunity. And so for, as a dividend investor, I love dividends. Anytime I see a stock with a low payout ratio that has been increasing dividends in the past, that's a really good sign for me in the future. But what I love about Visa the most is their margins. Visa this year operated at a 67% EBIT margin. Wow. And they increased their margins this year by over 1%. And next year, we think they'll do it again by about almost a half a percent. Wow, that's 67%. Um, that's pretty astonishing. All right, let's move on to Constellation Brands. They can't be that high. Yeah, Constellation Brands has about half the profit margin, about 34% EBIT margin. And, you know, again, what I love about the three names I'm talking about today, each of them has not only started off with a really good profit margin, they were able to increase their margins in 2022, which is a really challenging year because of inflation. And so, you know, Constellation, they're big in all the Mexican beers or in other spirits as well. But the fact that they've been able to maintain and grow their margins, they've got new innovation, new products that they're rolling out. I'm a real big fan of Constellation. Okay. But I just have to ask as well, though, I mean, I understand the argument that, you know, demand for beer, wine, whatever you call it, is essentially recession-proof. But I just think, to me, it seems quite discretionary. I mean, when you're you, you can get buzzed from, you know, a lot of things. You don't need to, to pay a premium for it. I, you know, why wouldn't that be an obvious place? People might have fewer parties. There might be fewer work celebrations. You know, why wouldn't that stock get hit if there is a little bit of a consumer pullback? Yeah, I mean, think about it. I, I, I don't know about in your house, but we're, we're all, there's always, it's always uh, a time for cracking a beer. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, whether true. you're partying, whether you're at home, but also keep in mind, Constellation owns a real big stake in Canopy. And you mentioned multiple ways to get buzz nowadays. Mm. And Canopy growth is in cannabis and recreational and medical. And so if regulations change here in the U.S., I think they're really well positioned to profit from that trend as well. I will point out they are only down 8% year to date. So an outperformer in that sense. All right. Finally, international flavors and fragrances. Is this a little bit more of a B2B play? It is, absolutely. Most people don't know that this company even exists, although they consume the products just about every day. Now, food, I think, is one of those things that whether the economy is roaring or whether things slow down, you've got to eat. And the things that they provide, they're the largest provider of specialty ingredients in the world. They have something like 25% market share in things that we consume that ultimately are really part of the value chain of getting food onto your plate. And they've got pretty good margins, a lot lower than the other two names. Their profit margins are about 10%, but they grew their margins this year by about 25%, which is really incredible. And, you know, considering all the inflation that the, the consumers have, have experienced. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest takeaway for me here is just um, quite a Quite impressive uh, durability for all. I'll even say for Visa, I'll throw you that. You know, we've been on that one for so long. Alan, thanks for your time today and for all of these picks. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Alan Merry Christmas. Boomer. Happy holidays. You as well. Alan Boomer from Momentum. Still ahead, inflation and recession fears have both consumers and investors hunting for bargains. We're going to highlight which sectors are trading at a historical discount. Here's a little preview. And if you should buy in, that is next.
Welcome back. All three major averages are on pace for their worst year since 2008, but some sectors are holding up better than others. It's time for some sectornomics. Dom Chu crunched the numbers to see which are now trading at a historical discount and which are still not, Dom. All right, so we're still in ranges right now, given what we've seen over the past several years in terms of the COVID pandemic lows, some of the highs in the wake of those things. But the, the S&P 500 over the course of the last year has been drifting lower, no doubt. And for this time being, at current levels, we are trading at just around 17 times forward earnings, meaning you pay $17 today for S&P 500 stocks for every dollar's worth of anticipated earnings they're going to make in the coming year. So this is a discount valuation to where it normally has traded on average over the last five years. Now, which sectors in focus right now are the ones that are trading at bigger discounts and premiums to the market? If you take a look at these sectors, check out what's happening with communication services, a beaten up sector. Meta Platforms, the company formerly known as Facebook, has a lot to do with it, the big declines there. But you can see over the last five years, kind of on average trades at around 19 times earnings. We are currently just around 15 and a half times earnings right now on a forward basis. So watch communication services. It could provide a relative value compared to other parts of the market. Also, another one trading at a discount right now. Check out what's happening with consumer discretionary. Forward price to earnings over the last five years, closer to 29 times. It's now around 24 times. So, again, trading at a discount to where it has on average over the last five years. Remember, this sector has Amazon and Tesla in it. And then if you're looking for the sector that's trading at a premium, meaning people have been bidding up these shares compared to where they should be trading given their valuation for forward earnings, check out Consumer Staples, Kelly. Right now it's trading at just around 22 times forward earnings, typically going to just around 20 times you can see there on average. So, yes, there's been a lot of focus on those dividend-paying consumer staple stocks. We'll see if it stays that way, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. I mean, it also is just a reminder, Don, that the overall market is still not cheap, even after the declines that we've seen. So, remember, kind of at the highs, right? At the highs that we saw over the past couple of years, the S&P 500 was trading at 22 to 23 times forward earnings expectations. Right now, it's closer to that 16, 17 times. So it's below average. But the concern is that if we really do have an earnings recession, you may have even further to go. People getting a little bit more scared, not willing to pay up as much for those expected earnings in the coming year. So those valuations, yes, still very much a question. Of course, that's not even taking into account some of the ripple effects from tighter interest rate policy from the Fed. That's going to be a big wild card in the first half of next year. All right, Dom, thanks. Dom Chu, coming up, no corner fixed income being spared from the carnage this year, and that includes munis. The PIMCO Muni ETF is on pace for its worst year ever, but could a looming recession cause investors to rush back in? We'll explore that after the break. Welcome back to The Exchange. The bond route of 2022 has left no part of fixed income unscathed, including the muni market, the tax-free muni market. Lipper data shows muni mutual fund outflows hit a record this year, with investors pulling more than $100 billion out of the space. But with rates potentially stabilizing as the Fed is expected to slow hikes, could the money return and the returns in 2023? Let's bring in Jeff Johnson. He's senior vice president in Appleton Partners. And Dominic Chu is along for our wonky but wonderful unofficial segment to continue. Jeff, welcome. Muni performance next year. What should we fear? Well, I think the muni market's in pretty good shape for 2023. You've got a carry yield that we're forecasting for intermediate portfolios of somewhere between 2.4 and 2.7 percent, Kelly. So, you know, that's a that's a level we haven't seen in three or four years. So I think we're starting from a pretty good yield, a pretty good base. 
Um, and when you taxable equivalent that for, for high tax states, that's upwards about five and a half percent. So I think the muni market has set itself up for a pretty good year in 23. Yeah, Dom, this is an area as well where maybe, you know, we should talk about the difference between owning funds versus owning the bonds outright. You know, I mean, if you own it outright, the only real risk you're talking about is default risk by a lot of state and local governments. Sure, and, and the thing about it these days, too, is it, it used to be if you were a muni investor, you had a lot of different investment advisors who specialized in picking individual funds and putting portfolios together. The problem is oftentimes you needed a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars at least, to be able to kind of put portfolios together like that. With the advent of mutual funds and ETFs targeting specifically those muni funds, you've taken a lot of those minimum concerns away. So you just try to focus on whether or not you are going to be buying the certain types of funds you want. But I would also say that for many of these, people still want to hire managers, either at the mutual fund exchange traded level or even investment advisors themselves, because oftentimes it comes down to picking. And then which ones, by the way, which states, and do you want general obligation based on taxing authority or the revenue bonds based on things like stadium sales or right. anything else? I mean, those things are all complicated still. All right, Jeff, you're our expert. Where would you, have, where would you put people's money? Well, Appleton's a separate account manager, so each, each portfolio is individually managed. Hmm. So then you, have, then you have mutual funds and ETFs. But, you know, the massive outflows this year in, in municipal in mutual bond funds um, to the tune of $120 billion. Interestingly, that money, a lot of it went back into ETFs. ETFs are actually up $24 billion in AUM this year. So Muni ETFs? Muni ETFs have seen $24 billion in inflows this year. And I think, Kelly, a lot of that is, is really the tax loss harvesting hmm. that investors did in mutual funds by selling the loss, selling the fund, uh, capturing the loss, and then redeploying it in ETFs. For SMA managers like, like Appleton Partners, where we're managing the individual portfolio and, and buying the bonds you know, directly, you know, we have a little more control over that tax loss harvesting sure. activity, and we've been really busy at that this year. I guess, Dom, the main concern, so you, you have Fed rate high. If we, well, let's put it this way. At some level, uh, higher interest rates would still be a headwind for muni performance, but um, inflation itself, like we talked about the other day, sure. can be a problem if these returns, if you feel like they're just not keeping up um, and being a good steward of your money over that period and, of time. And it's not just that, Kelly. Those are excellent points. It's also about whether or not you look at the, the way that you, you have a view on tax policy going forward, either at the state, local, or even at the federal level, and whether or not you want to start building portfolios that take advantage of kind of those tax situations now, and not just the tax loss harvesting, but this kind of secular view on where you think taxes will be, and if you want some of that tax-free income, if you believe taxes are going higher in the coming years. But also, an interesting point coming up for Jeff, some of those dislocations have created opportunities in certain parts of the mini market tied to closed-end funds. I know some investment advisors I speak to trading are looking discount, right, trading at discounts to where net asset value is. So some of those trading anomalies might be setting at least some investors up to look towards other parts of the market besides the outright bonds or even just straight ETFs. So, Jeff, we'll give you the final word here. What do you think are the best opportunities across Muniland right now? Right now, I like I like the the longer intermediate part of the curve. There's still some steepness left there. Call it 10 to 15 years. You keep your duration in check. So if you do see higher rates in in 2023, you're going to be in better shape. The other thing I think when you're owning the individual bonds and municipals in high grade investment grade, the default rate is one tenth of one percent. So a good manager that's dealing in investment grade bonds. Um, can build uh, a highly effective municipal portfolio that delivers good tax-free income, 
and preservation of capital, and that's what investors want. And we know that after this year, Dom, people are looking and saying, man, maybe there's some good value there. Maybe it's, you know, they're not so boring, are, are they? Are you saying there is an alternative? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Jeff Johnson with Appleton. Dom, a huge thanks as well. Still ahead, zombies are taking over Manhattan, or at least some of its prime real estate. That's next here on The Exchange. Don't go anywhere. One more thing before we go, rising rates and recession fears have taken a big bite out of housing. But according to real estate mogul Don Peebles, the market's been even worse for office space. The commercial office space marketplace has been hit by double whammy, high rates and a recessionary environment, but also a change in the way people work. Americans are working differently. Uh, remote work is here to stay. Um, hybrid work is here to stay. And so there's a far less demand for office space. And that's putting a lot of pressure on REITs, for example, that have in hot, a large inventory. Putting a lot of pressure on office buildings, too. Across the river in New York, Robert Frank's been tracking the rise of zombie buildings. Robert, what can you tell us? Well, Kelly, if you add up all the empty office space in Manhattan right now, it would total 40 Empire State Buildings of vacant space. That's over 100 million square feet of space. Now, as Don just mentioned, remote work is one big reason. Only about half of Manhattan's office workers are back in the office. That's basically unchanged since September. But the new worry right now is layoffs, especially in tech. Meta laying off over 800 employees in New York. They're vacating 250,000 square feet of space that they just took over in Hudson Yards. Twitter laying off over 400 people in Manhattan. Unclear what it will do with its 140,000 square feet of space in Chelsea. Amazon cutting its planned space also in Hudson Yards. Now, new office buildings or Class A space, that is strong, but it's the older buildings, Class B and C, that are seeing record tenant losses. Wharton Property Advisors estimates that 40% of New York office buildings now face a critical choice, whether to start costly renovations to try to bring back tenants or just leave the buildings empty as zombie buildings. Analysts say defaults and distress likely next year. Investors also feeling the pain. REITs with exposure to New York, like SL Green and Renato, down over 40% this year so far. Kelly. And Robert, I asked Don and others have made the same point that it's very expensive to convert office to, re to residential. So it's much cheaper to just build residential new and that's going to be another headwind for investors in these REITs. That's right. I mean, the silver bullet would be to convert some of this 100 million square feet into much needed apartments where we still see record rents in Manhattan. But as you say, it's very expensive. Land and building costs are very high. Zoning is complicated. And even then, it's just unclear on the commercial side whether we can bring people back to the city. And then you have this added layoffs, not just in tech, but now increasingly in the financial sector. True. And the conversion bullet is just not going to save the commercial space and some of these REITs. That's right. Now subway service pulling back as well, and perhaps Mondays and Fridays reflecting this new yep. normal. Robert, thank you, our Robert Frank. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.